You're listening to the Achieving DevOps Podcast. I'm Dave Harrison. Join us as we talk about delivering software reliably and at a higher velocity. Uh, so hi, everybody. I'd like to introduce you to my friend, Nathan Harvey. Nathan's um, someone that I was introduced to when he was working at Chef. And uh, he had some great stuff around configuration management um, that really loved. And I think you're going to enjoy talking to him as well. Thanks, Dave. It's, uh, it's good to catch up again. It's been, it's been a minute since last we chatted, I think. I know. It's been a while. Um, I'm so excited to talk to you again. I, I really enjoyed our, our chat. But first, I mean, there may be some people out there, just a couple, who, who may not know you. So why don't you talk to me about uh, wh where you're from? Like, what, what's your history? Yeah, sure. So, um, well, first, we'll start with my name. As you mentioned, uh, it's Nathan Harvey. Uh, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, you have to do this weird thing. If you want to go all the way back to my history, there was this uh, rule in my family. Mom picks the names. Dad misspells them. Uh, so it's N-A-T-H-E-N. H-A-R-V-E-Y. Uh, my father decided, you know, sometimes I curse him and sometimes I think, you know, that guy, he was just a brilliant futurist and he knew that one day all of his kids would need a way to uniquely identify themselves on the global network. I've always wondered why it was Nathan with an E and now I know. It's, <laughs> it's your dad. There you branding, go. Is, branding Nathan Harvey. That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's my dad's fault. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I, um, my current role, I'm a developer advocate at uh, Google uh, in the cloud space, of course, and I'm really focused on the DevOps and SRE community. Prior to that, as you mentioned, I was at Chef, so I spent about six years at Chef where I was helping build and grow and support and, and move forward the community around Chef. Uh, and then prior to that, I had a real job um, where I was you know, building systems, deploying code, uh, getting paged in the middle of the night when things, things went wonky uh yeah so that's kind of my history that's really cool yeah um, so 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 tell me about where where do you see yourself in five years oh that's a great that's a great question um uh wow five years from now where do i see myself uh wow. alive uh, yeah yeah uh alive would be good alive would be good <laughs> um, you know dave i think i think we do all of this for a couple of reasons, right? Uh, I have a family, so I want to see, you know, five years from now, my my middle son will be uh, probably finishing up his fourth year at, at college. Uh, I won't I won't put any any more uh, pressure on him than that. Finishing a fourth year at college would be great. Uh, my daughter will be entering her first year, uh, so that would be that would be pretty awesome. Uh, but I think that uh, you know the the reason I do the work that I do professionally. Uh, as a developer advocate is really to help this community do their job better. Uh, and so I think I think five years from now where I'd really like to be is in a place where I'm um, not only having, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in five years from now, I'd like to be in a place where I'm not only having a, an impact on the broader community and really helping people adopt new practices and technologies that are helping them be successful, but I'd really like to be helping people that are helping those people sort of uh, doing this sort of meta developer advocacy or developer relations, if you will, bringing along the next generation of advocates uh, to help push this industry forward. It's funny, that's that's kind of what interested me too, because I started realizing a few years ago, it's like, wow, developers everywhere I go are pretty good. And But what makes or breaks a project in a, a company even is 
the process and how work is done. And that's what I'm interested in, meta developer advocacy, like you say. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, you know, when we when we talk a lot about developer advocacy, um, one of the things that we tend to focus on is the developer or maybe not even developer per se, but the technical practitioner. And the truth is, um, while it is important and necessary that we help each of those individuals, the reality is that we have to help those teams of developers, those teams of technical practitioners. How do we make uh, a team effective and highly performant? That's what really interesting. Okay, fascinating. That's that's I love that because it's not star performers that make or break the team. It's how it's how cohesive that team is. Are we bringing everyone along? Absolutely, absolutely. So tell me about kind of this can be like a life lesson or maybe a DevOps breakthrough moment. But what have you kind of learned looking back? Yeah, I think I I think looking back, there's a couple of things. I think um, you know. I've always felt that DevOps, uh, this movement is about culture. And, and that, that holds as true today as it did uh, in the early days when I was thinking about it. But the truth is, uh, it's very difficult to change culture. Uh, you can't change culture by talking about it. You can't change culture through an executive order alone. You can't change culture through a grassroots movement alone. Uh, the culture changes in an organization uh, when we adopt new tools and adopt new processes uh, that allow us to, to approach the work differently. And so, like, I always think back on, you know, some of the very simple things. Uh, I, I, like, the go-to story that I like to talk about is uh, version control system. Listen, all of our code, all of our software, all of our configuration files should be stored in a version control system. And if you've been around the industry for a, a, a little bit, um, perhaps you have history with a version control system that isn't a distributed version control system like Git. Perhaps you have experience with Subversion. And maybe you even remember the transformation that your organization underwent to go from Subversion to Git as their primary version control system. I know I went through this with a couple of organizations. And each time we went through this, the story was the same. The first thing that we had was resistance. I don't want to change this tool, this process, this system I have in place works really well for me and the team. What's the benefit if I change? There's going to be change, which is hard. Uh, and so what's what's going to happen on the other side? So there, there's that resistance that, that you see first. And then maybe you convince enough of the people on the team that let's go and do it, or let's go and try it. And the first thing that you do, or the first thing in my experience that we did, and uh, we did this twice at two different organizations, was you picked up the process that you had within Subversion, and specifically like the branching process, the idea of a central uh, repository that has all of the control. And we basically ported that process into the new tool. Which, which did not take advantage of any of the capabilities that Git gives you, right? The reason that people love Git is you have lightweight branches that are very easy to merge, very fast to do. And when we first moved to Git, we, we stayed in that sort of subversion mindset where branching is expensive, uh, we want to try to avoid it, and there's someone that has to be in control of all of the merge. Over time, we as an industry, we as the, those organizations, like learned how to change the process to take advantage of the tool. 
And the, 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 the thing that was really interesting to me along that process is not only did we take better advantage of the tool, not only did we change our process, but we actually changed our culture, right? With a distributed version control system, there's a culture of trust. You're giving everyone the full repository. Whereas in uh, in the days of subversion, maybe everyone didn't have access to the full repository or the full history, and that was all centrally controlled. So pushing that control and that trust and frankly, that responsibility out to the edges, that required a tool change, but the tool change then uh, enabled that cultural shift as well. And so to me, those are the fascinating moments when we can find and really clearly identify how a technology changes and reinforces and amplifies a culture, while at the same time, the culture is changing and reinforcing and amplifying the technology that we're using in this nice sort of virtuous circle. Interesting. So I know like with, with Microsoft, we, 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 a developer does a pull request, right? And then we do a promotion and only after it passes all of these tests and, and that's when we do a merge back. Um, so we, we try to have very short-lived um, branches, but yeah. um, we're not using your standard, uh, you know, GitFlow, I think. So of those kind of the, the varieties people are talking about, like GitFlow, GitHub Flow, GitLab Flow, do you have something you kind of lean towards? Or oh, yeah. Dave, the I, flavors of the ice cream there? You know, for me, I think, and, and I think, I think, frankly, a lot of the research sort of bears this out. But trunk-based development or master development with very short-lived branches that get merged in and that trunk or that master is ready to deploy at a moment's notice, that is that is the best, best way uh, to manage those version control systems. Uh, I think the research bears it out. My experience bears it out. I've been in places, you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of one of the downsides of Git. Branching is so inexpensive and yes. relatively easy. Uh, yes. So the tool there isn't necessarily reinforcing the best practice uh, or the best, um, you know, flow that you might have. And, and I the, think the tool can allow you to have very long-lived feature branches. Oh, like it, stretch on for weeks and weeks and weeks. It sure can. And I tell you, you know, again, in sort of my history, one of the things, you know, as as people were really starting to talk about continuous integration, the, the first sort of experiment or, or implementation of continuous integration that the teams that I were working on, we would cut a branch for a feature and then we would practice continuous integration. Every feature branch, you had to merge master into that feature branch at least daily, which is great for those feature branches. But the longer those feature branches live and the more of them that there are, let's say you have a feature branch at A and B that are both cut on the same day, throughout their next six weeks, you're merging master into those feature branches. Well, at the end of the sixth week, let's say A merges back into master. Mm -hmm. Well, the day after, it's time for B to merge back into master, and now B is completely hosed, or even merging master back into B. Now we have all of these merge conflicts. Um, and so we really need to be at a place where we're using short-lived branches. And by short-lived, I mean 24 hours or less, a business day or less. Uh -huh. Something specific. I love it. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you know, um, it's also interesting to think about what does that mean for your applications? It means that you have to be able to maybe implement things like feature flagging into your application architecture. So it's not just a version control thing. It's about how do we architect these systems? Maybe there's feature flags. Maybe we have loosely coupled microservices. 
uh, where these things can change independently of one another. But then you you have to start thinking about versioning, right? If I do have a, a, a set of microservices, API producer and consumer, how do I make sure that the versions stay in sync and we aren't breaking backwards compatibility or we aren't uh, or that we're upgrading in time and so forth. So you start to bring in all of these other considerations. I'd, and I'd love to talk more about like feature flags and microservices. We'll have to kind of push that back a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. I, I love that you're saying, listen, you know, here's the litmus test. Is your master ready to deploy at a moment's notice? Because yeah. like at Microsoft, back in the day before we came along with VSTS and Azure DevOps, um, our it, master was never ready to deploy. It always ran red. And right. we had this integration hell, and our, our, our feature branches were very long-lived. So you're like, look, I don't care what type of flow strategy you use, as long as those branches are short-lived and that master is ready to deploy. You may not deploy off of master to production, but at least it's ready to deploy at a moment's notice. You can cherry-pick if you need to. Right, right. No, I think that's, I think that's extremely important. And it, it also kind of gets back to um, some of the business challenges that I've faced. Uh, you know, we were, I, I was working in a place where we were, we were deploying on a pretty frequent and regular basis, I would say. Maybe every two weeks a sprint would end and we would deploy out to production. So let's call that every 14 days we would deploy to production. Well, it was typically within 24 to 48 hours that we would roll back from production because of an error that we discovered. And then it would take us another three days to fix that error and then push all of those changes back forward. And so the business learned that a deployment was a very painful, uh, a painful activity, right? Mm -hmm. And so we said, as technologists, we said, well, we know how to fix the way that we fix this is that we deploy more often. And so we went to the business and said, hey, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to deploy more often. They said, wait a minute. Every two weeks, you cause us service interruptions, you cause us a lot of pain, and you're telling us that you want to do that more frequently? I don't think so. And so it took us, you know, it took us some time to build that trust and really to introduce this idea of if we if we roll out smaller incremental changes on a more frequent basis, what that means is that it's it's gonna be less destructive if there is a bug we're more likely to catch it and be able to recover from that very, very quickly than if we batch up a bunch of changes and, and have this huge ceremony around a deployment. We want those deployments not to be big ceremonies. We want them to be normal operating procedures, standard operating procedures, normal business. Yeah, if we're having to do our rollouts at eight o'clock in the evening on a Friday uh, with like a war room, for example, that's usually a sign something is very wrong. Yes, indeed. Um, it, it is a sign that something is is uh, potentially very, very wrong. Uh, if nothing else, we are being inhumane to the people <laughs> that are, are having to deploy and, and troubleshoot those systems late at night. So talk to me then a little bit. One of the things we I was in a meeting not too long ago, and, and it was almost like a war between the stakeholder who says, you developers keep embarrassing me. I have to gate every single release and manually approve them, and then the developers who are begging for more velocity, but may not have been, you know, kind of paying attention to quality enough. How do feature flags kind of help uh, give a level of safety, I guess, so we can start releasing a, a little more frequently and more yeah. control? Yeah, sure. I think that there's a couple of things there. So certainly feature flags can help with that. We can enable, or sorry, we can deploy uh, uh, new features that are disabled by default. 
Um, but there's a couple of other practices that we can start to introduce when we do things like feature flagging. For example, we can do a progressive deploy or a canary deploy where we roll out and enable that feature for a small set of our user base. And we can observe what's happening in production, making, making sure that we get the expected outcome from that change. The users have the correct experience, uh, the systems are behaving the way we expected them to, and so forth. And when we see that happening, happening, then we can start progressively rolling that out to more and more of our customers. So that the actual deployment might not hit 100% of your customers at, at the same moment, but the safety that you can have uh, and the um, more control that you have as you progressively roll this out, maybe it goes out to 10% of your, and then it goes out to 20% of your customers, and then it goes out to 40% of your customers and so forth until you get to 100%. And um, th yeah, that's that's terrific. I'm particularly circling back a little bit to version control because yeah. DevOps, a lot of people define it as, hey, DevOps is bringing all the stuff we've loved with, as coders, you know, version control, rollbacks, um, we're bringing that now to the operations sphere. So version okay. control for operations is like, that's really the where the the wheels hit, the rubber hits the road when it comes to DevOps. So working at Chef, and we talked about this, what do you, what advantages do you see there when it comes to kind of making operations teams in support of software easier in infrastructure? Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, I think really it's about when we start talking about automating your infrastructure as an as an operator, and I can tell you again, like I I came up as a system administrator, uh, and when I was uh, early on in my career, uh, I was very hesitant to automate anything because, as I mentioned, I was a system administrator. So I knew if I put my hands on the keyboard and banged around until I got the system into the shape that I wanted, I could trust that system. And then automation frameworks like Chef came out and they took all of the control. And it was very scary. It was scary to sort of give over control to a system that maybe I didn't understand and wanted me to do things like store the code in version control, write code in a language that I wasn't necessarily familiar with, maybe even write some automated tests. So we started bringing the discipline of software development to the practice of system administration. And so we combine those things together and you get sort of infrastructure automation comes out the other end. But it's not, again, it's not just about the tooling. We have to help the humans that are, that are utilizing that tooling along that journey. And so it actually provided for me a great opportunity for me to sit with developers. You know, you can think about infrastructure automation as a software development project. So how can I sit down with a software developer and learn some of their practices and maybe along the way, teach them a little bit about how systems work in an operational or in a production environment. So again, we can all learn together, build a little bit more empathy for each side of that equation, right? Building applications versus running applications. That to me is really powerful. One thing you brought out to me is, Dave, one of the failure points I see with adopting Chef or Puppet or anything out there any any tool is that a lack of trust like yeah i don't i don't want this configuration management tool even though it has an agent and i can schedule it and it can roll back for instance an, an os patch i don't like uh i i don't i want to hit this manually i want to review i don't trust the tool to run hands off mm -hmm. why is that a problem yeah i think it's a problem for uh people that are first making the transition because it's new it's different 
It's not something that you have experience with. And, and, and uh, it can be scary um, because the, the beauty, the beauty of uh, sort of automating your infrastructure is that things can happen faster and more consistently and a small change can be rolled out globally very, very quickly. And the, the downside of that is exactly the same. Things can happen faster, they can happen more consistently, and a small change can be rolled out globally. So how do you know that the change you've just made is going to have the intended side effect or the intended impact? And that's where we have to start bringing in things like automated testing. And so we start layering in, again, it's more software development practices that we're laying it, layering in to this idea of infrastructure automation. Right, so e even our operating systems, everything can, can now, we can set up tests around it. Okay? Yes. For example, a chef. A absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, and it's interesting to me because, um, you know, if we, if we stop thinking about our infrastructure and our software as two different things, or our infrastructure and our applications as two different things, the, you know, when you build an application, you expect it to have some side effects, right? A user fills out a form, some data as a side effect ends up in a database or an order gets placed or something like that. When you're managing your infrastructure as code, it's the same idea. You write some code, that code gets executed, it has a side effect that changes something, right? The thing that it changes now is maybe not a database record or an item in a shopping cart, but it's the underlying infrastructure. So if we really just think about, we write code, we execute that code, when we execute that code, it has side effects. Now let's keep at that sort of that level. All right, well, we need to test that code. We need to have peer reviews of that code, right? We might have some code reviews before we push that code out into production. We need to monitor and control the rollout of those changes. Change is change is change. Do you think that, like with the advent of Docker and, and, and Packer, do you think it, um, now it's easier for us to roll out templated environments like that and, and roll back if we have to? I think it, I think it definitely um, changes the approach. I think, uh, you know, when, when Docker first came on the scene, it was, uh, it was great because it gave, uh, it, it gave more people sort of access to build an artifact, build uh, a package, and that package contained everything that you need. And we had sort of this artifact that we could then hand from development over to operations. But the truth is a lot of developers did not or do not necessarily have experience in the concepts and practices around, say, release engineering, where we really have to be concerned with what are the dependencies that end up in this package? If I run Docker build on my machine and then you run Docker build on your machine against the same Docker file that we've both checked out from version control, do we end up with the same result? And the answer really is it depends. These builds aren't necessarily deterministic. Uh, and so we have to put additional controls around the Docker files that we're creating to get there. But even, even, even excusing that for a minute, we can easily push out those Docker containers, roll them back, what have you. It, one of the challenges there becomes around how are you managing those artifacts? If I asked you right now, which version of which Docker containers are running in production, that might be a very difficult question for you to answer. Or it may be that you have a myriad of versions of those containers for the same application. So how do you start managing and controlling all of that. It's not, it's not, frankly, it's not too dissimilar to some of the challenges that we faced with golden images, if you will, back in the VM days. <laughs> yes. 
So you have this pro proliferation of versions of your packages. How are you managing those? How are you controlling those? Um, and, and depending on your industry, you may have to look at things like, what's the, um, what's the provenance of this, in, of, of this image? What's the lineage of it? Where did it come from? Whose bits are inside of this image? Do we have full control over that sort of supply chain of the software that we've put into this image? Yeah, and, and you and I talked about that whole the, the Golden Library dream that was so prominent 10 years ago. Um, and, and you said to me in that interview a year ago, right? Uh, hey, there's a trade-off we're paying here. Um, yeah, we're reducing our operational complexity, and that's good, right? But we're also introducing a lot of rigidity. I mean, we're not allowing developers um, a lot. If they have to choose between a couple vanilla in installations of Ubuntu or or Windows, you know, we're we're really kind of straitjacketing them quite a bit. If I'm paraphrasing you correctly, there. Yeah, I think that uh, I think that um, there's kind of two sides to that. Either we're we're finding the right patterns within our organization and setting up the right sort of compliance uh, controls or policies, or we're letting folks run willy-nilly. Uh, either way, we have a trade-off in complexity. Sometimes it gets, you know, if, if they're running willy-nilly, they, they, you may be introducing things into your operational environment that your operations team is not prepared to observe, to troubleshoot, to monitor, to, to care and feed. Uh, whereas on the other hand, if you put very strict and tight controls over what can get into production, you may be tying the hands of your developers. And so I think you have this uh, it, it sort of have this trade-off that you have to make, and you have to find this balance point. And I think the best way to find that balance is, um, and I know this is hard, Dave, but it's to get the people to talk to talk to one another, talk about what they're trying to achieve and come up with a solution that works for everyone. That's definitely a hard balance to, to get to. Yeah. Uh, when, when you and I talked, you, you said what we found works is a pilot effort, and I think you called it a, a DevOps dojo. Like, from six weeks, we're going to try to do a complete release. Yeah, yeah. Talk to me yeah. a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that the um, we've, you know, in my experience, I've seen a lot of enterprises that are trying to adopt DevOps these new practices, these new technologies, and trying to then, once they've adopted it, to scale that out. And I think you see a number of different patterns. One of the ones that's most successful is this idea where you start with a pilot project. Maybe you take one workload or one piece of functionality, one, one unit that can be deployed independently, and you bring together a cross-functional team to try working in this new way, prioritizing the work this way, making the work visible that way, uh, using a pipeline, using automated tests, pushing out to a cloud, what does that whole process look like? And bring together a full cross-functional team. So you'll have a product owner or product management. You'll have application engineers, infrastructure engineers, uh, database, network, security, whomever, like whatever is required to get that piece of functionality from a developer's workstation all the way through, or, or maybe even from an ID all the way through to production. We bring together that cross-section team. And Sorry about that. Yeah, hard. there is a dog here in the background. He used to be let out. So, <laughs> anyway, yeah. um, the joys of working from home. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> we'll pretend like that did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you've got this cross-functional team and you set them, you, you give them the time and space uh, and permission and responsibility to build this application, to build the pipeline that's required to get it to production, to build the observability and the monitoring and alerting and so forth. Give them the six to eight weeks to, to do all of that. Let them experience what it feels like to work in this new way with these new processes, with these new tools. And after you've done that, you can then start thinking about how do we rotate this team? How do we maybe send half of this team back to their home base, if you will, and bring in another set of developers and infrastructure system administrators or network engineers? How do we bring this new group in and let them go through that learning process? And that learning process has to be something that's real, um, where they're putting their hands on the keyboard and actually delivering business value at the end of the day. Do you do you look for something huge or something more? I mean, how do you pick that first workflow? Yeah, that first workflow uh, or that first workload can be uh, like picking it can be difficult. You want to pick something that um, isn't just hello world. Because at the end of six weeks of what you can do is deploy Hello World and it's all tested and like as soon as developer changes Hello World to Hello Earth uh, and commits that to a version control system, it automatically ends up in production. That's cool, but nobody cares. Right. On the other hand, uh, if you take the number one thing that makes your company money, that num like that top workload, and start there. One of the things that we have to learn through this process is how to embrace failure. So what you don't want to do is take the most important thing that keeps your business liquid, that keeps your business in the block. Right. right? You don't want to take that thing uh, and, and, and do this process with it. There's too much to learn yet. So you have to pick something that's, that's uh, you know, it could be a green, a, a greenfield application. Uh, it could be something that's, uh, Im important, but not necessarily critical or mission critical, but something that is, you know, at the end of it, people are going to be surprised by the value uh, that it provides and the way that you were able to change this. It has to be meaningful, kind of meaty. Interesting. And you mentioned to me, hey, you know, a, a great place to start is um, as far like looking at what caused your last outage, like the most serious and yeah. maybe maybe peeling that one off. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the one thing that's true about any sort of transformation, whether it's DevOps or what have you, or a journey that you're about to go on, I think there's a couple of things that are pretty universally true. First, there has to be some reason to go and change things, right? Why, why should we do this DevOps transformation? Why should we begin a DevOps journey? Well, maybe if we don't, our business is in jeopardy. Uh, or this application is in jeopardy, or this particular set of customers, like we might lose them. So I think uh, it's it's really it can be really helpful to take a look at where are your systems failing, uh, where was your last? Uh, because you know what, what we don't want is more incidents. Uh, things are going to continue to break. I can guarantee you that, and in fact, I can virtually guarantee you that something's broken right now. Uh, which doesn't mean you should stop listening to this podcast and go fix it necessarily. But if you need to, you can always hit the pause button. But but uh, realistically, there's something that's either breaking now or that has recently broken. And part of this journey is we're on a journey to learn. So how do we stop and learn from that incident? How do we learn from that failure? And what can that? How can those learnings guide us 
to build a better, more resilient system, a uh, system that includes the technology, system that includes the humans and the process and the people, all of this together. How do we build a more resilient system? We can start by looking at our most recent failure and, and sort of back our way into, this is the thing that we should work on. These are the things that we need to put in place. And yet, so oftentimes we, we're very poor at learning from failure because either we try to shift blame elsewhere or we try to pretend like it never happened. We don't really have a, a blameless postmortem system like we see at Etsy or you know, Google or Microsoft, right? Right, for sure. Like we, look, failure, that, that hurt, right? Yes. What I want to do is I want to move away from that hurt as fast as possible. Uh, and I want to get back to the things that are good. Things that are good include things like shipping features, like that feels good, I'm delivering some real value. We had an outage, that was bad. Let's recover from that as quickly as possible and move on. Uh, sometimes that means burying our head in the sand. Sometimes that means finding out who should we blame. Neither one of these things are gonna help us succeed over the long term. Uh, and so it, it, it is absolutely critical that we take the time to learn from that failure. And you know, Dave, as, as I've joined Google, one of the things that I've been able to focus on in addition to DevOps is the practice of SRE or site reliability engineering. And one of the frameworks that you have within SRE is this uh, idea of an error budget. And an error budget can be the thing that helps you decide, should I focus my engineering resources on features and, and sort of application velocity, or should I fo focus my engineering resources on reliability and things that make the system more reliable? And this idea of an error budget t tells us that if we've overspent our budget, that's an indication that what we need to do is work on things that make the system more reliable. And at the same time, if we have a lot of excess budget, so we have, you know, in air quotes, if you will, a lot of money left at the end of the period, that is an indicator that we weren't moving fast enough. We weren't experimenting. We weren't learning as much as we could from the system. So let's increase our velocity and focus there. So I think using a framework like error budgets with service level indicators and service level objectives is a really nice way to help get the business, IT, developers, everyone on the same page around when and how are we going to make the trade-off between reliability and velocity. We, I love the SRE movement. I think it's terrific. I got a chance to talk to Betsy Byers, Stephen uh -huh. Horn, a few other people over there. Um, and we've adopted it very enthusiastically at, at Microsoft because it's it's very uh, prescriptive. It's like a recipe you can follow. It's you know it's not wishy washy or fuzzy at all. And you're talking about hey, here's the targets. Every, velocity comes at the cost of stability. So how much risk can we accept? And usually the stakeholders' idea of what reliability is and the developers' view of what reliability should be are two different things. And it's it's implied, it's not explicit, and that causes misunderstandings and bad feelings. So it's like, let's get everybody on the same page and talk about a number, the error budget, and how do we stay within that so that we get an acceptable amount of flow and risk? Because we know things are going to break, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think I think the error budget uh, as, a, as a sort of construct or a framework is a great way to bring all of those stakeholders together into the room, have that discussion, and like you said, get on the same page. And I think it's super important that those stakeholders all have that discussion, not when things are broken, but well in advance of that, so that we can make those trade-offs and come to an agreement on what happens, again, when either we overspent our error budget or 
have a, a large chunk of our error budget remaining. Do you find, I mean, we talked about culture a little, and it's, it's incredibly hard to, to turn a super tanker, you know, yep. especially an organization that's been working very effectively for, let's say, 100 years, making money and still making. Um, but do you think, I had one person tell me, our company believes in experimenting as long as you do it on weekends and as long as you, you don't make a mistake. Right. Do, is that common, do you think? Um, I don't, I, I don't know. I think it's, uh, it's, uh, I'm sure it's more common than I'd like to admit. <laughs> uh, I, I, I feel confident saying that. Look, I think a company that's been around for a hundred years, if you look closely enough, uh, it's been around for a hundred years, uh, because it's changed, right? It's not doing the same thing in the same ways that it did a hundred years ago. Now, that change may have been slow. That change may have been gradual. That change may even be hard to detect uh, from the outside. But if you get into that organization, I think that you will see uh, that there's been a lot of change over those 100 years. Uh, and some, sometimes during those 100 years, I would imagine that there, were, there, you know, there are peaks and there are valleys. Uh, and that's going to continue. And the truth is that the rate of change and the rate of how technology is impacting the way that organizations work and the things that we can do with technology, that is changing ever faster, right? If you go back 20 years and look at the rate of change and the things that we were rolling out as far as technology and then compare that to today, it's, it's two different worlds, right? And so in order for us to really leverage the technology advances that are out there, uh, we have to be able to adopt change. We have to be able to bring in new technologies and, and allow those technologies to lift up and support our people and the systems that we're trying to create. I think this is, uh, this is really powerful because you, you and I talked about like how to get executive buy-in. You, you spent a, a good amount of time on this. And so many times, like the reason why I started the book was I was giving a presentation and someone said, well, I'm just an engineer. I'm a team lead. I can only speak for this much of the organization. You know, what, what do you suggest I do? And I gave him a really terrible answer back. I said, you know, well, without executive support, just forget it. Don't even start. It's too risky. I hated that answer. You know, but, but let's say that I'm that guy. I'm, I would like to create some change, but I don't speak for the whole organization, just for a little group. How do I introduce change so that my life is less miserable without kind of opening myself for getting fired next time there's an outage? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question, Dave. And I, I think, you know, I would say to that person a couple of different things. The first thing I would say is, listen, if, if you don't have, uh, I recognize that we don't, uh, we don't all have control over the direction, the, the working of our entire organization. But uh, just by you asking me that question, it's an indication that you care. Uh, and, and if you don't care, if you don't care, then what I would suggest is that you quit your job. Uh, if you don't care about the business of your business, go work somewhere else where you do care about the business of your business. That's my first piece of advice. And, and I recognize that, like, look, in technology, we, we are in a privileged place uh, for me to even be able to say those words to you. We have <laughs> pretty comfortable jobs. Uh, and, and there's another one out there for us, right? So uh, I recognize that telling people to quit their job isn't necessarily the best advice. Uh, but honestly, if you, if you can't change your work, change your work. Uh, so going beyond that, then, I think uh, the thing that uh, I've seen work successfully, look, 
it does help to have executive buy-in. You need that executive cover. Uh, you need someone that can help protect the experiments that you want to do. But even without that, you can start to imagine what is the place that we want to get to. Find the people on your team, find the people on other teams at your level that want to help you get to that place and start making incremental changes to get there. And iterative, iterative small changes. I know we can't boil the ocean tomorrow, but how can we uh, get one step closer to that? And maybe boil the ocean is bad because uh, I don't really want to raise the uh, the temperature of the ocean. By <laughs> think exactly the opposite. So don't freeze the ocean overnight. Uh, but how do we lower the temperature of the ocean by one degree? <clears throat> right. And I think I think there's a couple of things there. As you start doing that, it is extremely important. And this is also relatively difficult for a lot of engineers. I think it's extremely important to be in, not only be intentional about the changes that you're making but be intentional and thoughtful about how you're talking about the changes that you're making so that you can go to that executive or your management chain and say, listen, we changed this thing because we're on a path towards X and X is a fully automated system or is a more resilient system. And this small change, while it doesn't seem meaningful yet, look at this as the foundation or a building block that's getting us to X. And you have to repeatedly have those conversations so that you can bring the executives along so that eventually your executives, your managers, whatever, do become those champions for you. But it requires us as engineers to bring some marketing into the work that we're doing. We have to market that internally. And you said, you know, if you don't care about the business of your business, in other words, can you link an improvement to money saved? Or money made for the company right a lot of developers have no clue about how to do that we haven't been to business school this is a foreign language but dave i'm using kubernetes now <laughs> so can you translate that into hey we have less outages which means this number more customers happy or this number of dollars right it's an opportunity can right. we phrase it into business into yep. business terms sorry absolutely and i think getting getting closer to and a better understanding of your customers is a great way to do that understand who are your customers yeah when was the last time you talked to someone that was a customer of your business and if if you can't do that when was the last time you yourself were a customer of your business uh think about you know if it's a a, a site or a service that's selling goods uh, have you been through the order process lately? When was the last time you went through it and purchased something? Uh, when was the last time you did an account creation or executed a particular task or completed a, a specific journey uh, as a customer? Do you know what that feels like? How, you know, these are these are questions that I think are important to ask. Absolutely, and I've talked to some managers and and um, JD Trask from from Raygun. Um, out in New Zealand. And he said, Dave, we struggle with having developers understand the customer's point of view. So I try to bring them, invite a developer or two each time I go to a conference and they make them sit at the booth and they start talking to customers and they get that engagement and they come back with all kinds of new perspectives. Um, Absolutely. On, right. Yeah, I think there are, there are tons of uh, success stories like that. Going to a conference or I was working with a bank uh, and they, they, um, 
encourage their software engineers to go and sit with a teller for the day, not become a teller, sit with a teller and observe them doing their work. And then understand that the applications that you're building are the ones that those tellers are using. And uh, that can be really super impactful on how do I get a better understanding of who my customers are. I have someone say, someone said, told me, um, we take our, our developers and one at a time, we spin them out for three months and they have to become kind of work alongside the operations team and they hate every minute. Yep. But when they come back after those three months, I never hear it works on my machine. That's not my problem. Yep. Like suddenly they understand, you know? Well, and I think, I think it's just as important that as operators, we go and spend the three months on the development team. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. look, it's it's not enough for them to have like for one side to have empathy for the other. That has to be a two-way street, a two-way conversation, if you will. So it's important for us as operators to go and sit with the development team and understand the things that bring them joy and the things that frustrate them and understand what role can we play in that to make their lives better. One of the uh a video I, I found, I think it was of you a long time ago, was does, you know, does DevOps mean blowing up silos? You had a farm, yeah. a farm video. Yeah. I love that video. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> Is that true, though? I mean, do we have to take, uh, say, shared services uh, group where we've got a team of DBAs, we've got a team of business analysts, we've got the developers over there, and they never talk to the QA people, and the QA people are hated by everyone. Do we have to break that up? I, I mean, I, I think that you do. I think that, uh, look, and by breaking it up, it doesn't mean that the developer has to become the operator, the operator has to become the developer, the DBA has to become a network engineer. I don't mean that we should take on each other's roles. But I do think uh, that we need to be aligned in a way where we understand why are we here. We understand the customer that we're serving. Uh, and we understand how to work together as a team to deliver value to that customer. Uh, and so I think that, um, you know, having those, those barriers in place that, you know, if, I, if I'm a DBA and I need to ask something of the development team, if what I have to do is pogo stick through my org chart, right? Like I have to go all the way up and escalate to my manager who's gonna go over to that manager and then it's gonna go back down and that's how change gets made, then like it's a flawed system. We have to be able to reach across uh, the aisle or through the silo wall or whatever metaphor you want, but we have to be able to talk to one another. We have to understand that we're here working together towards a common goal. Awesome. I, I really love it. Um, I know we're running out of time. I, I So many things I'd love to talk to you about. Um, I do want to ask you this, though, like with the rise of containers and provisioning yeah. software, for instance, in Terraform. Yep. Are, are configuration management tools like Chef, like Puppet, like Ansible, are those things as necessary? I think that uh, I think that their role has changed. Uh, and I think that it's important that we go back and consider sort of what what is the role of each of those tools. Right. Terraform is amazing at provisioning systems. Uh, but what Terraform isn't great about is how do we change those systems over time? And sometimes changing those systems over time means that we just have a new uh, a new container that we're now going to go off and deploy. Immutable I, infrastructure. Right. They have pretty short shelf lives. This is like a cow, right? Yep. Versus a pet. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that, you know, containers, uh, Kubernetes, Terraform, like all of these things can help us start to realize the vision 
that Chef and Puppet and Ansible have had all along. And I think it's I think it's important to go back to things like how do we build like we are building distributed systems. So how do we make sure that uh, all of the decision making uh, and the information that's required sits at the edge of those distributed? Systems? Do we have autonomous nodes in that system that are capable of making and keeping promises to one another? Uh, I think that's the thing that's really interesting. So go and read, uh, you know, Mark Burgess on promise theory and dig into the core, the science behind configuration management. And I think that you will find that all of those uh, principles still apply. It doesn't matter uh, what the technology is that's helping you deliver those systems. That's I find that fast. I'll have to check that out. So Promise Theory is by Mark Burgess. We'll, we'll put right. a link in the podcast. That I like yeah. that. Tell me about some other, you're obviously, you care a lot about learning. What are some books and podcasts or websites that you're really into right now for learning? Yeah, I think that, um, I, you know, I love the annual State of DevOps report, which is published, uh, you know, by DORA, the DevOps Research Associates. Uh, they're coming up on the sixth year, I believe, uh, this year. But last year they wrote a book, um, and that's by Dr. Nicole Forsgren, Jez Humble, and Gene Kim. The book is called Accelerate. Accelerate, yeah. yeah. Building and scaling high-performing technology organizations. I tell you what, Dave, the capabilities, <laughs> the capabilities they list there, the metrics that we have to talk about. Uh, I think number one, it's super accessible to everyone, whether you are uh, an in the trenches sysadmin or you are a CTO. If you pick up this book and read it, it will speak to you. Uh, and you will want to change the work that you're doing right now. I, I love that. Um, when when it, I think it came out in February of last year, and <laughs> I remember picking it up and going, "Well, crap! I have to start over." Thank you, Nicole Forsgren. <laughs> Absolutely. Stomping all. I mean, seriously, I had to completely start over. <laughs> yeah. I love Accelerate. I I, I mean, it, it's got everything in it, and it it, it speaks to business people, it speaks to nerds. So. Yep. Um, and I, I love how access, uh, you talked um, about speed, efficiency, mm -hmm. risk, you know, and you talked about like release, number of releases, you know, hey, what's their MTTR? What's the success rate of our builds? Yeah. You know, how much time does it take to, to kind of detect? That was echoed in that book as well. And, yep. and they basically take those four things and say, those are the KPIs we want to look at. Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing that's super interesting to me is, uh, is are the, the people in the research that's, that are starting to push beyond that. So if you look at um, folks like John Allspa at Adaptive Capacity, uh, who's telling us that our, our metrics are shallow, uh, we aren't learning enough from incidents, we aren't investing enough in learning. Uh, I think that, that that to me is super fascinating. So you know, we start digging into uh, places where, frankly, in IT, we're just starting to scratch the surface. Things like resilience engineering, uh, I think, is is fascinating and something that uh, I think everyone needs to uh, needs to to look at and think about and recognize that uh, as you read through some of that and start to get a better grasp on uh, resilience engineering, you will likely recognize that it's not what you're doing today, uh, and you will likely recognize that. There isn't a clear path from the way that you're working today to the way that these folks in the resilience engineering uh, area are talking about. And I just want to encourage you that if we go back 10 years, uh, there were many of us that were talking about and learning about DevOps for the first time. And we knew that there was no way that we were working that way and that there was no, no clear path to get us there. 
And across the last decade, we have made iterative improvements to a place where in some organizations, DevOps is it's just the way now. Uh-huh. Uh, so while, while some of these newer ideas and new research around things like resilience engineering seem daunting, believe me, I believe in you and you can get there. Yeah, I love that incrementally. Um, so one last question. Um, yeah. What accomplishment are you like most proud of in your your? Wow, um, I know it's a big question. You've you've been around a while, so yeah, you know the the thing that I'm most uh, proud of is little moments that happen from time to time where I run into someone who, you know, I had a conversation with, or they saw me give a talk or listen to a podcast that I was on, and that sparked something in them. And sometimes it's something so very simple. I, I, a, a great example of this is I remember giving a talk and I told the, the, the audience, look, if you want to start your DevOps journey, sit your developers and your operators next to each other. A year later, I had someone come up to me and say, you know, I heard that and I asked to move where my desk was physically and I got a ton of resistance. And it took me six months to be able to move and sit with the developers. And the impact that that has had has been tremendous on the way that we work. So for me, the proudest accomplishments are when I when I hear about those moments of people that embrace change, uh, maybe change that I, in in some small way, helped spark or ignite. Uh, that to me is 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 what when I'm most proud. Awesome. Well, Nathan, I really appreciate you chatting with me. Um, <laughs> just a great guy in industry. You really helped me with my book. I thought you brought a lot of experience to the table. So I want to thank you for your time. This is really great. Awesome. And Dave, congratulations on the book, Achieving DevOps. Uh, it's super exciting. <laughs> Thanks, my friend. All right. Well, we'll t- I guess we'll talk soon then. All right. Well, that was a great discussion with Nathan. He's got so much practical experience, and I, I love what he brings to the table. We're talking about containers, configuration management, getting buy-in, and, and just the power of a small beginning uh, with the DevOps Dojo concept. So uh, we'll definitely put some links out there, including uh, probably the best little two-minute video I've ever seen with lots of great special effects on no more horse manure. You're going to love that. And we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. If you found any of this helpful, please share it with your friends and coworkers. 
and we would love your five-star reviews. See you next time.